Father, as we open your holy word this morning, we would ask that you would lift us up out of the mire and the clay of this dark world in which we live and focus us heavenward, Father. Shed the light of your truth upon us and please water us with your Holy Spirit at our roots. May we know what it is like to feel the life of your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coursing through us, invigorating us and refreshing us and giving us that daily renewal of the joy of our first experience in knowing him when we first poured out our hearts and cast upon jesus all of our cares and and we were so graciously wondrously redeemed return to any of us who have lost that first joy return to us the joy of that moment and father we pray that your name will not be reproached by anything in us this morning by our thoughts by our attitudes perhaps by our apathy, our slothfulness toward the things of your kingdom, or by our unconfessed sins, our disobedience to you in any way. Bring glory to yourself by rescuing us from such things and and continuing your saving work in us until your Son reigns over every member of our individual bodies, our, our minds and our hearts and our tongues and our hands and our feet and every other part of us. We pray that those who may be struggling with lack of fruit or with personal issues, perhaps being discouraged just with circumstances in their lives or or being overwhelmed with the world in general, which is in such troublesome times, and we do live in perilous days. We, We pray, Lord, that they would find this morning an adjustment of their spirits through the words of Jesus Christ and that they would turn to the grace and strength and the peace and the joy that is only available in him. And may your word, Father, be spoken today without impediment or obstruction of any kind, and may it once again prove to be that powerful thing that brings life and spirit and does not return void. And then, Father, we ask in the week to follow, might each of us be about the business of of doing those exploits for you that bring you the honor and the glory through our fruit that you and you alone deserve. For we ask these things in the blessed name of the righteous branch, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are in Lesson 154, The Vine and the Branches, Part 2. We're going to be looking at John 15, verses 4 to 8, but there's no sense in trying to follow along with me in your book because this is a completely different lesson from what's in your book. Now, I do encourage you to go home and read your books, but you might notice that I'll say some things today that are completely different from what's in the book, so just disregard what's different, okay? (laughs) Because I grow as I progress, and I'm going to approach this lesson from a different angle than what's in the books. The books will reinforce what you hear today, but they won't follow along, so you might want to take some notes here and there, because I'm going to give you some new thoughts this morning. We come today, as I said, to the second half of our look at the Lord's extended metaphor concerning our true relationship to him. In this analogy, which happens to be his seventh great I am statement in John's gospel, Jesus used the figure of a vine. Remember, he said, I am the true vine. So he uses a figure of a vine, a vine dresser, and branches. And as we know, a branch of any kind 
whether it's a vine branch or a branch from any other tree or bush, is completely lifeless, hopeless, useless, helpless, and fruitless by itself. If you go out into your yard like I do every single day of my life and pick up pine cones and sticks, you know that a stick, a branch lying on the ground, is lifeless. It's useless. It's fruitless, isn't it? Just like that, um, we... We as branches can produce no fruit of our own. Likewise, it's only our union with Jesus Christ that gives us spiritual life and makes the bearing of fruit possible to begin with. Because it is the purpose of all true branches to produce fruit for the glory of the vine and for the glory of the vine dresser or the husbandman, also is the owner of the the vineyard, We, as if I hope you're all true branches, true Christians, we should all want to know how to produce fruit, shouldn't we? That's our purpose, is to produce fruit. So I would hope that each and every one of us want to know how we can produce fruit. How can we abound in fruit for the glory of the true vine and the vine dresser, his father? And what we find in this wonderful analogy of the vine and the branches of John 15 is that the key to abounding for the Lord rests in abiding in the Lord. You want to abound for the Lord? Then the key is to abide in the Lord. And that's exactly what he addresses in verses 4 to 8, our passage for today's lesson. In verses 4 to 6, he talks about abiding in the vine. And in verses 7 and 8, he talks about abounding for the vine. Now, it is important when we come to a passage like this to understand that this is only one of many illustrations or analogies or metaphors or figures or parables or whatever you want to call them that the Lord used to describe our relationship to him. You see, the fact is that the Christian experience is so diverse. It's so multifaceted. It's so Uh, varied, that there is no one illustration that can encompass all of it. So sometimes we find that Jesus referred to himself as a shepherd, as our shepherd, a good shepherd, right? And we are his, we are his sheep. And that's because there are certain truths that can be illustrated by that particular analogy. For example, a shepherd can give his life for the sheep, can't he? protecting his sheep, defending his sheep. And that's exactly what the good shepherd did. He gave his life for the sheep. Now, you couldn't, you, you couldn't explain that truth with the vine and the branches because if the vine gave his life for the branches, uh-oh, tr- the branches would be in trouble, wouldn't they? Also, elsewhere in Scripture, we find that we are referred to as living stones, which are built up into the fabric of a structure of which Christ is the chief cornerstone. And that is a better illustration, you see, to describe the building up of his church. And then elsewhere he refer he is referred to as our head and we are his we are his body. And we're to function that that helps us to understand how we are all to function together in unity as his body. He's the head, we function together. And now you wouldn't get so clear from talking about sheep or or living stones or branches. But you do get that truth, you know, when you talk about members of a body. In many of his parables, we have found that he is a king, and we are his subjects. We are his kingdom citizens, or we are his servants. 
And that best pictures our duty to obey him and to labor faithfully for him. And in many times he talks about when the king left on a, a journey and we're to labor faithfully in the king's absence. But in John 15, he calls himself what? The vine, the true vine, and his followers are branches. Why does he use this particular illustration this time? Well, because now his primary truth that he wants to convey to his disciples is the importance of bearing fruit, fruit bearing. You wouldn't get that too well from stones, would you? If you're talking about us being living stones, you wouldn't get it too well from sheep, really, bearing fruit. They don't bear fruit. (laughs) Or what else, you know? A vine and branches is good to convey the idea that we need to be fruit bearers. And so we find that six times in these eight verses, he mentions fruit. We read of no fruit in verse, the beginning part of verse two. We talked about this last time. He speaks of no fruit. He speaks, speaks of fruit. And then he speaks of more fruit and what? Much fruit. Interestingly, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about this, but there is a similarity between the vine and the branches analogy and the Lord's parable of the sower. Remember way back many, many years ago when we discussed Matthew 13. I don't know how many of you were with us, but we looked at that parable and the Lord spoke about a sower who sowed seed. What was the seed? The word of God, which is perfect. The seed was perfect. Nothing wrong with the seed. The sower sowed the seed, and it fell on four basic types of ground, or soil types. And what did they represent? Men's hearts, different kinds of hearts. Sadly, the first three of the four seeds fell on bad soil types. Uh, They were non-productive. They corresponded with the no-fruit branches of John 15, 2a. Remember, the birds took some of the seed. The minute the seed landed on the ground, birds came, emissaries of Satan, and took those seeds away. Um, Some of the seeds fell on ground and initially took a little bit of a root, but the root couldn't go deep in because of stony ground. There was a layer of rock right under the soil, so they didn't connect. They didn't sprout. And then others, thorns and weeds choked out the seeds. The cares and concerns of this world choked them out. They, you know, popped up for a little while, but when the sun came out, a little bit of persecution, they disappeared. So three out of four soil types did not produce any fruit. They correspond to the no fruit branches of John 15, 2a. However, there was seed that fell on good ground and did bring forth productivity. That fourth soil type was good, okay? But in that fourth soil type, we found varying amounts of productivity. Some seed brought forth 30-fold. What would that correspond with in John 15? Fruit. The 30-fold is fruit, John 15, 2b. Then some of the seed brought forth 60-fold. That would be the more fruit that it talks about in John 15. And other soil produced a hundredfold, which would correspond with what? Much fruit. That's mentioned in verse 8 of John 15. Something very clear learned from that parable was that good soil always produces some amount of fruit. Remember, we talked about that. 
A true Christian is always going to produce at least the fruit of repentance and the fruit of faith. And some of the, you know, degrees of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. In other words, every good Christian, every true connected Christian will produce something because there is always fruit where there is life. Every good tree bringeth forth what? Good fruit, Jesus said in Matthew seven seventeen. Or we could say, using his analogy of John 15, we could take that same verse and say, every good branch bringeth forth good fruit. Or if we use Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower, we could say, every good soil <laughs> bringeth forth good fruit. And you know what Psalm 1-3 tells us? It tells us that any tree planted by river of water will bring forth fruit in its season. How do we know the true tree... The good tree. How do we know the true branch, the good branch? How do we know the good soil, the true soil, from the not true? How do we know? What's the difference? Jesus gave us the the clue. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 7, 20. What we learn in John 15 is that the key to producing fruit, and I hope it's your desire to want to go from fruit to more fruit to much fruit, the key which is for all believers, rests in abiding in the vine, whatever that means. And we'll be discussing that this morning. Now, I mentioned this two weeks ago before we broke for our little rest there so I could paint. (laughs) No, uh, but I did mention that fruit bearing is basically a new thought for a new convert. It is a new thought for a man or a woman to be told that God had a purpose in saving him that goes far beyond just his own deliverance. God did not just do something for us in saving us. You know that? He didn't just do something for us in saving us. He expects something from us. In fact, this might upset you, but he would never have saved us in the first place apart from that expectation. And this passage teaches us that the husbandman, I told you earlier, is both the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vine, and he is also the owner of the whole vineyard. He didn't go to all the trouble of planting his vine in this earth so that he could just come down here one day and take it with all of its branches from one garden here, earth, to another garden, heaven. He doesn't go to all the trouble of planting and watering and pruning and cleansing just so that one day we blessed little branches can join him in heaven. (laughs) He does all of that with an expectation of getting something from us for all of his trouble. And don't think this is new. This isn't new. It's not new at all. Remember our extended look last time at all of those Old Testament scriptures? We were over in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea and where else? Jeremiah and Psalms. All those old, what? I don't know. We were everywhere. But we, um, what did we see when we looked at those Old Testament passages? We learned that Israel was pictured as a vine and she was delivered from Egypt by the Lord God, Jehovah God, and planted very carefully in the land of Canaan, (laughs) the promised land. Excuse me. Why? Because his objective for her was that she be spiritually productive for him. She would 
<laughs> he wanted her to be rich in fruit. He didn't just deliver her so she could live happily ever after. He wanted her to, to be rich in fruit for his glory. You know, that not only would she benefit by her fruit all the nations around her, she was to win the nations of the world to Jehovah God so that he would receive the glory. She was to bear much fruit and bring glory to his name. But instead, what did she produce? <clears throat> Strange fruit and wild grapes. She brought disdain and reproach upon her vine dresser. And <clears throat> after centuries of being more than, more than, more than patient with her and long-suffering, I mean, she, was, she kept killing his servants, his prophets. Being more than patient with her, what did he finally do? He cut her off. He cut her off at the roots. But there was a stump remaining. And out of it, just as Isaiah 11.1 1 had predicted, came a rod from the family of Jesse, David's father. And I don't think I told you, but a rod in Scripture symbolizes a ruler. A ruler came out of the family of Jesse. And this rod was called a righteous branch. Capital B, Right? Righteous branch. And he would, he would come, he was predicted to come, to produce the fruit that the nation never did produce. And by the way, I don't think I told you this either, and I should have. Maybe it was in your notes, I'm not sure. But the Hebrew word for branch, remember we saw that the Messiah, another name for the Messiah, was the branch. Do you know what the Hebrew word for branch is? Netzer. Say, okay, I'm so glad I know that. <laughs> it was Netzer. <clears throat> it's the root word in the name Netzeret, which if our way of pronouncing it is Nazareth. Nazareth literally in Hebrew means branch town. It's hardly coincidence that the branch, the righteous branch, was raised in Branchtown. That's not coincidence. Just like the true manna from heaven, the living bread himself came down and was born where? In the house of bread, Bethlehem. You know, he was also delivered out of Egypt as a young boy, picturing again Israel's deliverance. There is so much in Scripture that proves to you this is God's word. No one else could orchestrate this but God himself. This isn't man's book. So the branch was raised in branch town. Amazing. He was the human channel of God's power to the world. He was the branch from the vine of Israel that did produce fruit and still does to this day through the channels of his power to the world, which today are you and I, church age believers. Today we're his channels. We're the branches that have been grafted on to the vine. You know, have you ever thought about what an awesome privilege it is for you and I to be called by the same name as Jesus Christ? He was the branch. And what does he say we are in this parable here? I'm the true vine. Ye are the branches. He was the branch. We're the little branches. He's the Christ. We are little Christians. We're Christians. Isn't it awesome to be called by the same name as Jesus? It's wonderful. Anyway, we see from God's dealing with Israel... And right on through to the sending of his son and grafting us as Gentiles onto that vine that there is a central concern for results, fruit, from his people. And we learned, did we not, that the instrument 
that he employs to bring more productivity is his what? What's the instrument he uses? How does he prune us and purge us and cleanse us? Both ways through the word. The word. Every word Jesus taught was directly from his father. His words were his father's words. In fact, and he just told us that in John 14. He also told us that his words were his father's works. So everything that he gave us was from his father. And uh, it's his father's words that both purify and prune us so that we will be able to produce more fruit. But the father's work alone, now listen to this, the father's work alone does not guarantee productivity. I mean, he does so much. Isn't he the one that delivered Israel, planted her, watered her, fertilized her, pruned her, cleansed her, everything he did for her? And yet what happened? Everything was by his grace, but the Father's work alone does not guarantee productivity. If it did, Israel would have produced. She would have produced fruit. He himself is true. The vine dresser is true. And he is unerring in every washing and cutting word that he speaks. In fact, the vine is true. We know the true vine is true. But now we find in verses 4 to 8 that there is an indispensable personal condition to fruitfulness. The first two conditions are completely the work of God's grace. He is the one who saves us and he is the one who purges us. But the third condition is a matter of Christian responsibility. And this is reinforced throughout this entire chapter 15 of John's Gospel. As the Lord this time speaks uninterrupted. He's not interrupted again until somewhere in the middle of 16. So we can go without any interruptions. And uh, as you know, he and his men have left the upper room and they are now proceeding on their way to where? The Garden of Gethsemane, where later this night he will be arrested. By the way, I think you're... Lesson begins by saying Thursday night, and that is an error. It should say early Thursday morning according to Jewish time. So I'm sorry about that. Did any of you catch that? Or have you not read that yet? That's today's lesson. So it's one of, one of the first paragraphs. I think I say Thursday. Yeah, first word. Change it. It should be early Thursday morning, not Thursday evening. Okay? So now let's finally, that was the introduction, let's get into the scripture, all right? Look with me at John 15, I'm going to read verses 4 to 8, where Jesus begins by saying, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do what? Nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. All right, go back and look at verse 4. Did you notice that the Lord's words in verse 4, abide in me and I in you, are given as a commandment? 
This is an imperative. It's not in the category of optional. This is a command. Abide in me. Also, I want you to understand that the Lord was not commanding his disciples to be saved when he said abide in me. If he had been commanding salvation, which you can never do, you can command true Christians, but you can't command unsaved people. You invite them. You don't command them. But if this was commanding salvation, he would have said, be in me not abide in me. So make sure you understand that being in Christ is a perpetual condition. We've talked about this before. Once saved, always saved. You'll have the Holy Spirit, he said, forever. I will in no wise cast you out. Being in Christ is a perpetual condition, but abiding in Christ is something that can be interrupted. It can be clogged, I like to use in this illustration. It can be clogged. You know, we have arteries. They can get clogged with plaque, can't they? We can clog up our relationship, our fellowship aspect with the Lord. Our union with Christ, our salvation, is a matter of God's grace. But our communion, our fellowship with him, is a matter of our responsibility and our obedience. And how do we maintain that communion? How do we maintain our fellowship with the Lord? What is our responsibility? You could say it in one word. Abide, he says, abide. And to the proportion of our abiding in Christ, we will abound for him. So to be in Christ and to abide in Christ, make sure you understand there are two different things. A person first must be in Christ. He must be born again before he can ever abide in Christ. Now, he's speaking to men who are already in Christ, aren't they? Didn't he say in verse 4 that they were clean already through the word? Judas is gone. He's talking to just his 11 true men. And he's commanding their continual fellowship with him which would be necessary so that his life and power could flow through them uninterrupted unhindered unclogged and thereby produce fruit he still however has not said how that is done he hasn't said how that's done now there's four things that i want you to notice about this command abide in me and i in you Two of them are given to us by way of implication, okay? Number one, this command, abide in me and I in you, implies that those to whom he is speaking, and I just talked about this, already have a personal vital connection to him, to the true vine. This command is given to believers. They're already connected, and now they are to abide, whatever that means, okay? We'll learn later. This is really no different than being kingdom citizens commanded to serve the king faithfully in his absence. They're already kingdom citizens, okay? They're just being told to to obey and keep on being faithful. It's no different from sheep being told not to stray from the sheepfold. They're already sheep, okay? So that's the first uh, implication, is that this is, to already, this is spoken to people who are already saved. Secondly, the Lord's command implies that this vital connection might somehow be disrupted. It might be clogged. Not broken off, okay? Not broken off. Not a sheep turning back into a goat. Not a kingdom citizen being totally banished from the kingdom. But it could be broken off by being slack in abiding. 
um, or foolish in wandering. Don't some sheep wander off? Or disobedient in not working diligently and faithfully in the king's absence. If there was no possibility of a disruption, there would be no need for this command, would there? If we couldn't clog up our relationship and get that, you know, the sap flowing through the stem to the branches, he wouldn't give this command. It would just be automatic. But he gives the command because the connection can be disrupted. The connection already exists, but there is the necessity of maintaining it. Now remember, please remember, this is not about salvation. This is all about that fourth soil type, okay, and the amount of productivity, whether it's 30-fold, you know, 60-fold, or 100-fold. That's what this is about here, this command, abide in me and I in you. Now this command also, third point, removes abiding from the optional category. I did mention that. This is a command. This is not just something optional. This is on the level of the necessity category. It's something that must be done, and it is a command that is addressed to our will. It also, number four, and this is one where you have to put on your thinking caps, but it assigns both aspects of the abiding to the branches, to us, as our responsibility. What do I mean by that? Well, did you notice that this is a twofold command? Look at it again. Twofold, and it's connected by the word and. What's the first part? Abide in me. That's the first part. And what's the second part? And I in you. Hmm. The I in you is strange. We know that Jesus cannot be commanding himself to abide in the branches because he always would abide in the branches. He wouldn't move. Have you heard the little, you know, I know you have, the little joke about the old couple. They're, the man, man is driving down the road in the car and his wife is sitting over there, you know, and they're driving and in front of them is this young couple in a truck and they just look like one person. They're so close, you know. The girl is right there next to, and the wife, the old wife says to her husband, she says, we used to be like that. What happened? And he says, I ain't moved. (laughs) True, right? Jesus doesn't move. If we're not abiding, if we're sitting over there, who is the one that's moved? (laughs) It's us. So he isn't commanding himself to abide in, in, in the branches. Rather, what he is doing is he is assigning both aspects of the abiding process to his men. And to you and I, his followers. Think of it as saying this. Abide in me by letting me abide in you. Now, what can this mean? How can we do this? And he doesn't explain himself yet. He will, so hang in there, but he doesn't explain himself yet. For now, just realize that there are two aspects of abiding, and both of them are our responsibility. In the rest of verse 4, now through the end of verse 6, he goes on to reason with his followers about the importance of abiding in him. He actually gives them four arguments for why they should abide in him, why it is so necessary. And what he does is he now returns to his illustration and he compares the necessity of our abiding in him with a branch abiding abiding in a vine. 
He says, as a branch cannot bring forth fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. What is he doing there? He is giving an argument for the absolute necessity of obeying his command to abide in him and him in us. And actually what he does is he gives us four such arguments all the way through verse 6. Why should we obey this command? This command to our will. Why should we obey it? Okay, first argument he gives is this. Self-productivity is impossible. If you want to produce fruit, guess what? You can't. On your own, you can't. Self-productivity is impossible. How many of you have learned that to your own grief? I have, many, many times. I know the difference between when I'm up here giving something in my own power and strength and when the Spirit is flowing through me. Yeah, you can work yourself to death and and produce nothing, absolutely nothing. No branch bears fruit just of itself. It's the vine, not the branch, that has the vital connection to the earth, right? And to the soil and the nutrients in the soil and the water out of which life flows. Sometimes Christians have the mistaken idea that they can bear their own fruit, you know? I work really hard. I know I'm going to produce some fruit. A lot of Christians, you know, they're really in a works-oriented kind of thing. They think they can produce their own fruit. They get the idea that if they're strong enough, if they're smart enough, if they're uh, creative enough. Oh, we've got a lot of churches out there trying to be really creative in their methods and how to bring in the crowds and how to be user-friendly and da-da-da-da-da. Or if they can be talented enough to produce their own fruit. A lot of people think they can do that. And they are making their own fruit. But you know what God calls it? Strange fruit. There's a lot of strange fruit out there. And he calls it wild grapes. And is he pleased with it? Don't be foolish women and get caught up with some of these people on television, ladies. There's a lot of strange fruit being produced on TV programs. He's not pleased with it. True, genuine branches must realize that any self-reliance is just total foolishness. It's utter foolishness. It always has been and always will be. Christ working through us is what produces any fruit at all in our lives that we might see. Apart from the vine, no branch can bear anything. Have you ever seen a branch on the ground that of itself will produce an apple? If you have, that's a miracle. (laughs) Even the strongest or the most beautiful or the highest branch in the vine, the one that gets most of the sunlight, is totally helpless to produce anything apart from the vine. Now, an identical identical truth to this biblical uh, principle is presented to us in Zechariah 4. You don't have to go there, and this is in your notes. But back there in Zechariah 4, the inspired Old Testament prophet spoke about a golden candlestick, a giant golden candlestick or a lampstand that had this big bowl on top of it. And going to the bowl were seven lamps or seven pipes or seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps. And these lamps and pipes represented open channels through which oil from two nearby olive trees could flow to that giant candlestick, fill the bowl, and keep it lit. All right? Now, so Zechariah 4 speaks about 
lampstand and pipes, okay? John 15 speaks of open channels, but they're not called pipes. What are they called? Branches. And it is through them that the life of the vine might flow. Anything produced, whether it is the light of the candlestick or the fruit of the vine, is produced not by the power or might of the pipe or the branch, but by what? The oil of the olive tree and the sap of the vine. And both the oil and the sap picture who? God the Holy Spirit. And that's why Zechariah said to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's Old Testament. You know what the incarnate Lord of hosts said? Same thing, same principle, except he put it like this. Without me, ye can do nothing. Both verses tell us exactly the same thing. Anything we accomplish that would please the Lord as true spiritual fruit, not wild grapes, is born not by us physically trying, but by spiritually abiding. Oh, it's so much easier that way, ladies. Just rest in him, abide in him. You don't have to work. If you abide in him, we'll find out what abiding means. But if you abide in him, the fruit will just come. You don't have to strain and work and clench up your fists. Okay, that's the first argument. Now, the second argument for abiding is that it will, what I just said, it will, if you abide, it will inevitably, your abiding will inevitably result in fruit. So why obey him by abiding? Number one, because self-production is impossible. And number two, because abiding in him will result in fruit that does please both the vine and the vine dresser. And that's what we want, isn't it? Hope you do. His third argument is found in verse 5b, the latter part of verse 5, where he says, for without me you can do nothing. Vinelessness makes fruitfulness impossible. Now, I know I keep sounding like I'm repeating myself, but that's what he does, except, I mean, he's giving the same argument he just gave up in verse 4, but he's giving the flip side of it. In verse 4, his emphasis was on the branch. Here, he puts his emphasis on himself. Apart from him, the vine, there is total incapacity for any fruit bearing. Now, this statement is given in the most emphatic terms possible. Literally, in the Greek, it's given as a double negative. So if you were to read this exactly from the Greek or original, it would say this. For without me, ye cannot do nothing. Now, we have a problem, and I'm glad the translators didn't translate that exactly like it is, because in English, a double negative means a what? A positive. <laughs> so when, when, if he would say, for without me, ye cannot do nothing, that would mean, hmm, that I can do something. But that's not what he meant. In the Greek, you see, a double negative emphasizes the negative. They do things different, don't they? <laughs> you notice that with this Greek up here? But anyway, in the, in the Greek, a double negative emphasizes the negative. So what he is really saying here is this. For without me, you can absolutely, positively do nothing, no nothing at all, big, fat, zero. 
That's what he's saying. And the word nothing literally means complete inability. So do you know what he is doing here? Do you know what the Lord is doing here? He is labeling everything that we do apart from him as exactly what it is. Everything we do in our lives that is done apart from him, you know what it is? Nothing. A big fat zero. He's saying that all those greater works he promised his men that they would do once he departed from them back in John 14, 12. All of those greater works which he would do and he did do and he is continuing to do would be completely impossible apart from him. Now you do know, don't you, that there are many, many things done in the name of Christ in this world that have the appearance of being good, don't they? Lots of things have the appearance that are done in the name of Christ, look like they're good. They have the appearance of being blessed by God. Oh, that ministry must be blessed by God because it's so huge. Don't get mad at me, but Joel Olstein, oh, he must be wonderful. Look at his ministry. Hmm. Think again, ladies. Don't be deceived. A lot of things look like they're successful because they're huge. And in the eyes of men, they're so commendable and they pat them on the back and say, you're so wonderful and we know that God is blessing you. But you know what? They are done out of connection to the vine. So in the eyes of God, you know what it is? It's a long row of zeros. You mathematicians, what is zero plus zero plus zero plus zero plus zero plus zero on and on plus zero? What does it equal? Zero. Zero. Now, how would you like that on your gravestone? How would you like that as your epitaph? She did nothing. You know, most of the world, if God was writing their epitaphs on their gravestones, most of the world would have that on their epitaph. Think about it, That's true. She did nothing. He did nothing. Not, nothing done disconnected from the vine. I'm going to give a double negative here. <laughs> I'm getting myself... <laughs> Anything done disconnected from the vine. Well, I'm a Greek. I can do a double negative. <laughs> is zero. I mean, even many within Christendom are going to have on their epitaph she did nothing because they're going to go before him at the great white throne and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do many things in your name? Many miracles and wonder. And he says, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You did nothing for me because you were never connected to me. That's serious. That's very serious. And of course, you know, we have a world full of people, lots of people who will say, Yeah, well, the important thing is that I am going to make it to heaven. I know that I'm saved. And so what if I don't do anything much for Jesus? At least I'm going to get there. And do you know what Jesus says to such thinking? Not Catherine. You know what Jesus says to such thinking? Look at verse 4. He says, basically, you need to abide. Because if a man does not abide in me, he's cast forth. As a branch. He's not a branch, but he's cast forth as a branch. He's cast forth as a human vine dresser would cast away and burn branches lying around on the ground in his vineyard. That's a pretty strong, this is a fourth argument. This is a pretty strong argument about the importance of abiding, isn't it? 
The one who doesn't abide has a fiery end. Where? Lake of fire. So his fourth argument is abide in me because failure to do so results in your destruction. Your ultimate destruction. Now this is the fearful part of this analogy, isn't it? This is very fearful. And what does it raise in your mind right now? You're all thinking, who is he talking about here? And the answer to that, first of all, is look at the change in his pronouns that he uses. Before this, ever since verse 3, he has been talking to his men and using the pronouns ye and you, hasn't he? Just look at him. I'm not going to go over it. But now, and then after verse 7, or starting in verse 7, through the rest of the chapter, he goes back to saying ye and you. But what are the pronouns he uses in verse 6? He and them. Not ye and you. He and them. So these branches that are cast forth and burned are different from those branches that are his disciples and true believers. That's one thing we see very clearly. In answering the question of who the Lord is speaking of here, we say that he cannot be speaking of his men. Because we've already talked about the fact that once you're in Christ, you're always in Christ. And he does change the pronouns to show us that. Secondly, he cannot be speaking of people who are unattached to Christ in every way possible. He is not talking about Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and secular humanists and pagan idol worshipers here because they have no attachment whatsoever to Christ and to the gospel and to Christianity. They, um, they don't even remotely give the appearance of being as branches in the true vine, do they? I mean, they don't pretend to be like a branch. In the, even self-deceiving themselves, they're totally disconnected from the vine. They don't like the vine. They don't, they don't like Christ. Such people do not even remotely give the appearance. But on the other hand, neither can he spe- be speaking here of people who are truly vitally connected. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from the light of other scriptures. I'm not going to go there again, but trust me, once you're saved, genuinely born again, you are continuously saved forever. So, the, holy, the, uh, the Lord here must be speaking about people who are not like his disciples. They're not true believers, and yet they're not total pagans. But he is speaking about those who have the appearance of attachment. Now, to really clarify unclear passages, we go to passages that are clear. So I want you right now to turn to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, right before the book of Revelation at the end of your Bibles. Or not right before, there's Jude in between, but look at 2.19. Because through the Apostle John here, the Holy Spirit clarifies for us the nature of people who have the appearance of attachment, but in time they are separated and they wither. Have you ever noticed in your churches? People will come and they'll look like they, and they'll come for a while even and they'll look like they're so excited about the Lord and the things of the Lord. And then suddenly one day they disappear and they never come back. And I'm not talking about people who go down the street to another church. I'm talking about people who never go back, you know, darken the doors of a church anywhere. They just disappear. Have you ever wondered about them? Were they really saved or what was going on? Well, 1 John 2, 19 tells us about them. It clarifies us. Look at that verse with me. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued, abided. They would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. They went out from us. This is clearly not speaking of people who know nothing about Christ and who have no attachment to Christ at all. Because there was enough attachment to him that these people here initially gathered themselves together with believers, right? Since they went out from us. So initially they were with Christians. They did assemble themselves together with believers. He's distinguishing between those who are genuinely part of the Christian fellowship and those who only had the appearance of genuine belief. But in time, what do they do? They show themselves for their true colors. In time, what do they do? Just exactly what Judas Iscariot had just done. He had just left the upper room, right? Eventually, they depart. And that is so that God is manifesting to us that they were not really of us. Okay, you can go back to John 15. So here then is the theological explanation for what the Lord describes in John 15, but doesn't explain. John 15, 6. Those described in this verse are people who have some semblance of attachment to the Lord Jesus, the true vine, but that attachment is not real. It's not vital, and because it is not real, they do not continue to abide. And the long-term consequence is their own destruction. Very, very serious. This is a serious warning from the Lord to those people who say to themselves... Well, I'm a Christian, but I probably won't be very productive. I'm saved, but I'm content in knowing that I'll get to heaven. That's enough for me. Well, guess what? Guess what, Mr. Content with your own life insurance but not committed enough to obey God? Guess what? It might be enough for you, but it's not enough for God. And it never has been. Remember that illustration of Israel in the Old Testament and her lack of abiding in Jehovah God and her subsequent fruitlessness? Remember the great disappointment of the vine dresser? He had given Israel everything, but he received nothing back except that which was strange or wild. It was, you know, what he got was like fruit that was just growing out there in the world. It was fruit that could have been growing in Syria or Lebanon at that time or, or any of the Gentile pagan nations. You would never known it had been planted in Israel by Jehovah God and in Judaism. Just like today, a lot of the fruit you would never know was planted in the true vine and in the church. It's just out there. It's just, just like the world. looks just like the world. It's wild. It's strange. It has always, always been the concern of God that branches, his branches, produce. Fruitlessness is what? It's a terrible reflection, a poor reflection on the vine. And God is very concerned about the vine, the true vine, his son. He wants something that causes everyone to look at the true vine, you know, see what the branches have produced, and, and praise the true vine. And praise the vine dresser. He wants something that causes the world to look and say, you know, what, with wonder what he has done with his people and in and through his people. 
He wants us to be different. He doesn't want us to look like the world and talk like the world and act like the world and dress like the world and smell like the world and everything else. Don't smell like the world. He wants us to be different so that people look at us and say, wow, that, they, that glorifies Christ. That trial they went through and all the while they were praising the Lord. Those circumstances and they could do that with a smile on their face. They can consider it all joy. They're being persecuted and looking at it, you know, by the world as being fools, and yet they're smiling and they're they're always just abounding in joy and a peace that passes understanding. He wants fruit that to the world is strange, but to him is good fruit, much fruit. The whole Bible teaches that uh, it isn't just that when we stand before the Lord fruitless, we don't get any reward. That's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that if we stand before the Lord fruitless, it is because we were never saved to begin with. And our end is utter destruction. Didn't he say, you shall know them by their fruit. Every good tree produces fruit. Now I hope and I pray and I've been praying for you this week. I always do. That not one of you is outside of Jesus Christ. And that's very possible. I can't read the hearts. A lot of times we can be self-deceived. And it's very possible that some, someone here you know, has every appearance of being a true branch in the vine. But examine yourselves closely. There is a way to know, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, if you truly are a disciple. But I want to warn you, too, at this point, not only to examine your own heart, but be careful about accepting the words of someone who says that he or she is saved and yet whose life is a total denial of that affirmation. Don't just accept their verbal testimony. First John tells us that if a person says he has fellowship with God and yet walks in darkness, produces no, you see no fruit continually, year after year after year. They don't care to assemble together with the Lord's people. They don't care to read their Bible. They don't care, care to, to be involved in the Lord's work. If they say they have fellowship and yet they walk in darkness, you know what John says? They lie. What are they lying about? Their profession of faith. They may be self-deceived, but they're still lying. They're lying to themselves. When people are productionless, and when that fruitlessness is sustained, going on and on, they need to understand from you, not say, okay, you said you're saved, you're saved. Don't affirm that to them. They need to hear from you that their life must match their profession for there to be any assurance of a vital connection. And that, there's a, a very serious warning for people like that in the scripture, isn't there? They'll be cast forth as a branch if they're fruitless. Also for those, you know, who, who do think they're doing something. Well, I'm doing something for the Lord. It might not be much, but the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you if they continue on that way. All right, well, verse 7, finally, finally we get our answer about abiding and what it means. Now, remember, I want you to look at verse 7 and then shift your eyes up to verse 4 and go back and forth. Back in verse 4, remember the Lord's twofold command? What did he say? He said, abide in me and I in you. 
And we thought, what does the, how can he abide in us? How can that be our responsibility? We can understand we need to abide in him, but how can he abide in us and yet that be our responsibility? Well, verse 7, he gives us the answer. This time he says, if ye abide in me, and instead of saying, and I in you, what does he say? If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, then, you know, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So he changed. This is the answer about the second aspect of that commanded condition. This thing that is stated as my responsibility to abide in him is that his words abide in me. If I'm going to have any way at all of calling Jesus to my mind, of picturing Jesus, of knowing Jesus, of knowing his character, knowing exactly what he was like, having him alive before me, it has to be in the only place where he is revealed to me and is not in my dreams at night. Where is he revealed to me? In his word. His words in me are like having him in me. The written word makes the living word real to me. Alive, right? How have we gotten to know Jesus? Through the word, through studying every little aspect of his life. How is it that there is any connection between him as our shepherd and we as his sheep? Isn't it that he speaks and we hear his voice, we hear his words, and we follow? How is it that he as the head communicates his will to his body? Isn't it through his words? Isn't it how we know what the king desires of us, that we listen to his commands? As his subjects, and then we know his will for our duty. We listen to his words. I have a question for you. How else did we ever think that we would bear fruit? Did you ever, ever think you could bear fruit just by this with your Bible closed on your coffee table so that you could impress the pastor when he came over? No. Did we ever think that we could bear fruit apart from his word? Isn't his word everything? Isn't it the living water and isn't it the pruning and the, you know, it is, it's everything. Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. How does faith come? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. He said in John eight thirty one, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Do you ever wonder about churches that don't bother too much to study the word of God? That give maybe a little five, ten minute sermonette to Christianettes? Do you ever wonder about Christians who don't carry a Bible to church? Or that do just keep it in their car the rest of the week or on the coffee table? Do you wonder about it? If you don't, you should should wonder about him. For the life of Christ to flow through us uninterrupted and unclogged, we need to hear his words. And when we do, it is him abiding in us. You know what the word of God is like? It's like Lipitor. It keeps our arteries unclogged. Without the word, we build up plaque. It's the word of God that keeps... The arteries open so the the Holy Spirit can keep on flowing through us and we can produce fruit. It's him in us, 
All we have to do is abide in him. Let his words abide in us. And then what? When we do that, when we're so saturated with the word of God, when we just let it flow in us, which is what we do every week. This is the most important thing you can do all week long is to be in the word studying about Jesus because that's abiding in him and letting his word flow through your arteries and unclog them from all the stuff they get, the plaque that gets built up during the week. Uh, then do you know what happens when you abide in him and your blood turns to bibbling? I call it bibbling. That's a Bible word. <laughs> don't have blood flowing through. You have bibbling. Then you're so saturated in his word that when you pray, you pray back his word to him. You know his will because you know his word. So you get rid of all those foolish human wishfulness kind of prayers that don't really matter in the long run. And you pray prayers that are in accordance to his word. Is it in accordance to his word for us to pray, Lord, I want to produce fruit for you. I want to glorify you with my life. I want to redeem my time wisely. I want to be Christ-like. I want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. I know it's not your will that any man should perish, so help me to be a witness to everyone I come into contact with. Lord, give me divine appointments so that I can speak to them the truths of... Are those prayers he's going to listen to? Yes, look at what it says. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will... And it shall be done unto you. And you know what that is? When you pray back to God, his word, do you know what you're producing? That's the fruit. The answered prayers are the fruit. That's not something you have to work at. That's something that just comes by abiding in him and letting his words abide in you. It's so, it's so it's, it's just, you don't have to struggle over it. It's just so peaceful. When I learned this years ago, when this finally hit home, I thought, I don't have to work so hard, Lord. I go out knocking on doors and doing all this stuff in my own strength. I just need to abide in your word. You'll take care of the fruit. And I'll pray so that you answer, because as you want to answer those kind of prayers that are in accordance to your word. Now, there's a lot of controversy about what the fruit is. This is an age-old controversy. Some say that it's a person's character, that it is Christ-likeness, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. Others say it's a Christian's conduct, his service for the Lord. And you know what the most prominent one is that the fruit is? Souls, you know, one for the kingdom. But in this all-important passage of Scripture that is on, you know, it's all about fruit-bearing, none of those things are specified as the fruit alone. You know, any one of those things is just too limited. It's too too narrow. Why is that? Because the fruit is everything a, a believer produces. The fruit is the entirety of our production. And the fact is that an abiding Christian, a, a believer who is, you know, in the word constantly and praying to the Lord is going to have a changed character. That person is going to grow in Christ-likeness. They don't have to work at it. You know, if you had to work at, mm, I'm going to start at love and start really, really trying to love, 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 love. And when I finally got that down pat, then I'll work on love, joy, joy. Joy's next. I'm going to work really hard at getting a lot of joy in my life, going around with a big smile, you know. 
And then, and then after I finally get the love and the joy, and then I'm going to work on peace. You know, by the time I got to the end of the fruit of the Spirit, I would have long ago lost my joy and peace if I had to do all that in my own strength, right? But if you're abiding, a changed character will just naturally happen. And also change conduct. As you grow in the word, you're going to want to serve the Lord. Service. And that's going to also include souls. If you're so saturated with the word of God and you know it's true and you know people without Christ are disconnected and they're going to wind up with a fiery end, you're going to want to witness to people. And there will be a harvest of souls. And everything else that the scripture says a Christian should produce. That you'll just automatically, and that's, that's the fruit, and you will automatically produce. But how does any of this happen? Well, our character will not change. Our conduct will not be altered. We will see no fruit of souls unless his words remain in us and we take them to him. Because in the end, in the end, did we ever think we could do anything at all for him apart from his word and apart from praying to him? Did you ever think that would be possible? It isn't. Apart from his word and prayer. If anything happens in you, it is genuinely the fruit of the Spirit. And how did that take place? It was all God. It was all of God. And the reason we don't have more fruit is why? Because we don't, we know this, but we don't apply it. We have not because we ask not. How many of you are guilty of that? I am. I could have so much more if I just prayed back more to him and asked him for the right things. And he wants to give us that. He wants fruit in our life. So, good news is, you don't have to screw up your face and clench your fists and just go out there and say, I've got to produce, I've got to produce. You can't. You simply abide by yielding to his abiding in you through his word, praying back the words of scripture, the promises of scripture to the Father, so that he himself does mighty things through you, not by your might or power, but by his spirit. And your life will then be fruitful. And when your life is fruitful, the true vine will be glorified. He says, verse 8, here is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Not only will you glorify the vine, you will glorify the Father, the vine dresser, and guess what else? When you produce fruit and you know that that fruit had nothing to do with you, you will know indeed that you are his disciple. Look at the last part of that. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. When you see supernatural fruit, you have the assurance of the fact that you are truly his. You are his disciple. You are a follower of Christ. You are genuine, genuinely connected to the vine. And then you know what you will have? He always gives exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. You know what you'll have then? Look at verse 11. What will you have then? When you have that assurance that you are producing fruit for him, glorifying him, and you are truly his, what will you have? Joy. How much more could you ask for? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your precious, precious word. It is everything to us. And we are so grateful, too, for the pruning of your word. And we would ask, Father, that we would be purged and we would be pruned. Even though it hurts, we know it hurts. But we want it 
so that we would be fruitful. And Lord, wherever there are things in in our lives that impede our production for you, needless things, things that aren't vital, that take up our time and our energy and our attention, we ask as much as it might hurt, separate those from us, Lord, so that we can redeem our time wisely and be fruit producers for you. We ask that wherever there is a longing, a thirst, to bring glory to you by a life that is truly productive, a life that bears something spiritual and of eternal consequence, that you would continue your great work in that life. We ask that these things, we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of our blessed Savior, because we, without him, we we wouldn't even have the privilege to come before your throne of grace in the first place, much less ask that we bear fruit through him. And I would pray, Lord, that every single person here would truly examine her heart and make sure that she truly is in the vine and then abiding in the vine. Lord, we love you. I ask that you be um, with every woman here. Bring us all back safely next week and help us to be faithful, to stay in the word in the meantime, to do our homework and to dig for ourselves and find the precious wonders and promises of your word. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.